continuing our series in the book of Acts. We're continuing our series called Unstoppable Church. And we've said that sometimes people get anxious for God. Uh, They see the challenges that are facing the church and they wonder whether he's up for the task or whether they are. And so what we're doing in this series is going back to uh, the early church, walking through some of the challenges, the obstacles faced by that early church and how God powerfully and dramatically overcame them. You would think that last time we'd seen the, the apostles, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were, what, what more could they throw at them? This week, the challenges are internal. They come, in fact, on the heels of some wonderful things, uh, but they were threats and obstacles just the same. Now, to give you a, a little bit of a, of a picture of where this passage, I believe, is going, I want to tell you about a time when uh, a friend of ours came to visit us in Japan. Uh, we were serving as church planters, and uh, this uh, friend, along with his wife and his son, they wanted to come and see if they could uh, serve in the church in any way, if they could be a help to our church plant. And uh, they, they, they came and served with us for a couple of weeks. At the end of that time, I asked, what, what stood out to you? What, when, you when people ask you about your time, what, what will you, will you uh, share with them? And he'd say, he said to me, I think it'd have to be the cake. When people ask me what it's like to be a church planter, I'm going to tell them about the cake. Well, he was referring to a moment in a children's uh, ministry that we put on. Uh, he was a juggler. He had, he had done some juggling, he had done some, knew, knew how to do some animal balloons, and so we decided to host a, uh, a gospel clown workshop. We're going to teach kids how to be a clown, and so we taught them a little bit of juggling, taught them a little bit of animal balloons, and then I did a gospel talk that we incorporated into my friend's juggling routine, and it was all a lot of fun. But after a two-hour program that was preceded by Uh, Some promotions, setting up, tables, chairs, decorations. Had about 40 kids piled into our apartment common room along with uh, most of their mothers. Uh, After all of this event, we were just exhausted. But one of the mothers had decided to bring along some cake to give out to all of the children. And after a long program, the children were thrilled to be eating cake. The problem was... uh, we needed someone to cut the cake. And I was literally in a hot Japanese summer day. You can imagine way too many people packed into our apartment common room. Uh, it, it, the, the temperature was up here, and I was just literally dripping with sweat. And so I asked the lady, um, you brought the cake. Thank you so much. Would you mind cutting it for the, ch- for the children? At which point... She starts doing this as if to say, oh, no, no, I couldn't, do, I couldn't possibly do something like that. And so I decided to ask another person and another person, and they both turned me down. And then I looked around at the room as if to say, like, there's 30 women here. Is there nobody who can help me cut this cake? And there was no one to help me cut the cake. And so I got my knife dripping with sweat, and I'm cutting you know, cake for all of these children. And it, it, it stood out to my friend as a picture of what it was like to be a church planter because you're trying to do the work of the entire church, but you've only got yourself. And, 
and it was a very similar challenge that uh, the early church faced as they dealt with their growth, dealt with some of the transitional issues that they had to uh, face as they were going to see God's spirit powerfully work to send the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we want to look this morning at how God overcomes obstacles like that and the principles that they use to overcome them. And so if you would turn with me, I want to look at Acts chapter 6, looking at verses 1 to 7 on uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a little black uh, church Bible in the pew in the rack in front of you, and we're on page 859, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. Now, the first principle that we want to kind of lay hold of in this passage is that the church thrives when complaints don't overshadow priorities. It would be so easy for the grumbling of the church to overshadow the mission and send it in a different direction. But the church thrives when complaints don't overshadow priorities. Now, we've seen this already in this series, but this was a time of incredible growth for the church. On the day of Pentecost... 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, But the church just grew from there. By Acts chapter 4, we're told that there were 5,000 men who had trusted in Jesus. So with women and children involved, there were likely around 15,000 believers already. Then in Acts 5.14, we're told more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So now when it says in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, that the disciples were increasing in number, we're expecting there, there could be a church in Jerusalem of some 20,000 people by this point. Now, today, and there are churches in the world today where there are 20,000 people, that is an incredible administrative challenge. Partic- even if that church has, has been built up over several decades. But for a church to come together with no kind of uh, previous background or, uh, or history in just several years to, to be that size, there would be chaos and challenges. It is only a matter of time before uh, we see a, a problem like this, and this was probably uh, one of many. Now, it, it's an example for us of just the fact that most people want to see growth. They'd love to see growth until it happens. When it happens, often you deal with the reality of 
uh, of, of some of the things that go along with that. And some of the things that go along with that are, there, it is uncomfortable. There are challenges. There are obvious problems that uh, need to be faced. Now, the complaint in this case is intercultural, and it's a question of fairness. The Hellenistic uh, uh, widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. There are two groups here, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. They are both Jewish in ethnicity, but the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews from uh, farther parts uh, who have come from other parts of the Roman Empire. They've moved back to Jerusalem. They've settled there, and their main language is Greek. The Hebrews are referring to Aramaic-speaking Jewish people who are locals to Jerusalem. They speak a bit of Greek, but it's not their main language. And so these two groups, although they are, they are ethnically the same, they, they have different culture, they have different preferences, they speak a different language, and there are challenges. We're not exactly told why there was specifically these, uh, the, the uh, Hellenistic uh, widows were being overlooked, but with a church that's growing this quickly, into this size, it's inevitable that some groups are going to be overlooked. Things like this uh, inevitably will happen. But it's troubling to hear that the people are grumbling about it. It doesn't say that they were brainstorming solutions. It doesn't say that they were volunteering to help. It just said they're complaining about the problem. And we, get, we hear that, and we instantly think back to the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and the grumbling that took place there. And we're thinking, is the early church going to wander in the wilderness the way they did? Are they going to go down that same path? And so uh, we fear that, that kind of, uh, uh, that, that same path that they might fall on. Now they say that where there are problems with service, not just in the church, but in any organization, only 4% of people will complain about it. Only 4% of people will bring their complaint to, uh, to the staff or the management. But what they do say, and although four, only 4% will do that, they say that the average person, if they have a, uh, some issue about, about the service in any kind, if they have an issue, they'll tell on average nine other people about it. So we're, we're, we're thinking about that. We're looking at this, this complaint, this issue, and we're, we're supposed to think, I wonder if this will be the thing that derails the early church. Will this be the thing that stops them? Because the message spreads, hey, they don't care about people. They don't care about the most vulnerable. They don't care about widows. Like, what, kind of, what kind of group is that? They call themselves Jesus followers? And so we're looking at this and thinking this could be the end of them. Before they've even gotten going, uh, we could see an early end to the church. Now, complaints have a way of testing your priorities. How the apostles respond here will either show, possibly, that they don't care about widows or they don't care about the mission that Jesus gave them, the the teaching ministry that he entrusted to them. So in verse 2, they gather everyone together and they make an announcement. They say this, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're saying, hey, the widows are important. We are going to continue to be a, a, a community of compassion. 
But even though we we're, we want to be faithful to that, we want to we want to demonstrate compassion. We want to care for people. We cannot, cannot, cannot sacrifice the ministry of the Word of God. And they kind of lay down a distinction there of what their priorities are. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, he puts that priority like this. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Then in verse 15, he adds, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. The message is, the ministry of the word of God has to be the priority of the pastor, and the ministry of the word of God has to be the primary expectation of the church. And it is in that context that God is exalted, that his word is primary in a congregation, and that 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 ministry is preserved. But this was a test for the apostles. And today, many churches fail it. It's it's not, when, when those priorities are tested, either by complaints or pressures or stresses, many churches will, uh, will fail the test. What pastor wants to say, he doesn't have time for the widow's ministry? What, Jesus called us to serve and not to be served, didn't he? How do you say no to a ministry like that? How do you, how do you say, I, I just, I can't do it? There's some churches that will ask pastors to attend every meeting, lead every ministry, reach every lost person, be at every bedside, solve every problem, and care for every need. And that is a recipe for, it's it's a recipe for 15-minute sermons that were drawn up on napkins sometime between Sunday breakfast and the pulpit. And the mission of the church suffers. There, you, you see the church slowly die, and you wonder what happened. Everybody seemed so nice. They, they, they seemed like such a loving community. But somewhere along the lines, the, the, the priorities had been tested and found wanting. People had backed away from the mission of the church and the convictions that are to guide it. So the church thrives when complaints don't overshadow priorities. And the apostles had passed the first test. But they weren't out of the woods yet. Uh, There was still uh, another test to come. The church not only thrives when complaints don't overshadow uh, priorities, but also when challenges don't overshadow commitment. At the end of the day, you still need a plan to minister to those widows. You still need able, willing people that can uh, can, uh, meet that ministry need. So the church thrives when challenges don't overshadow commitment. Now, it was right for the apostles to draw a line in the sand and say, this has to be our priority. We can't let this go. But they still needed a plan. They still needed to be able to uh, find some way of dealing with uh, this vital ministry to the widows. If the church failed to care for its most vulnerable, its testimony uh, and its mission would fail. And, And so they needed to respond to it. And this is the flip side of not being tyrannized by complaints. You also can't ignore complaints. They're vital to, to seeing your blind spots and seeing where, where you need to, to grow and uh, f- go forward as a congregation. Bill Gates once said, you have to be constantly receptive to bad news, and then you have to act on it. 
He said, sometimes I think my most important job as CEO is to listen to her bad news. And he says, if you don't act on it, your people will eventually stop bringing bad news to your attention, and that's the beginning of the end. Sometimes, he said, the truth sounds like bad news, but it's just what we need. The apostles here could have just complained, hey, we're too busy. There's 20,000 people. We can't follow each one of these. But they didn't do that. They listened to the need, and they began to formulate a response to it. In verse 3, they propose a solution. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, in this case, the solution sounds a lot like the one that Moses' father-in-law Jethro gave to him when uh, the Israelites were coming out of, uh, out of Egypt and they had just this huge uh, number of people and the, the challenges of leadership that came upon them. The message is empower others, delegate, release the ministry, find others to share the load. It was a good plan, but it could easily have failed. I, I told you, for years of ministry in Japan, I couldn't find someone to, set, let alone help me cut a cake, let alone take on a daily distribution of food ministry. Like, this was a, a, a large responsibility that they were looking to fill. And how would you like to take over a ministry from the apostles? Like, these were people who could literally heal people with their shadow at times, right? We saw earlier in scripture. These are people who had lived with Jesus. Some of them had actually written scripture. The average person is going to say, like, no way, I, I'm not qualified. I couldn't take over that kind of ministry. And so that challenge is real. And we don't know yet how the church is going to respond, what, what they're going to do. Seven names are listed in verse 5 because they were stepping into a big gap and what they did was valuable, precious, and worth remembering. At the same time, the plan required that the apostles be willing to let go. It would have been really rewarding to take a greater hand in that ministry to widows. And maybe it would have seemed to them more attractive and more satisfying than time in the study preparing a ministry to the word of God. And so both sides of the church were tested through this time. Tested to see what they believed, what their convictions were, what their priorities were. In verse 4 they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, most of you, I think, if you were reading this in your devotions, you would come to this place and you would, you would nod. You might say, amen, that's, that's what the pastor ought to be doing. He should be praying and getting into the word. That, that just seems like nobody disagrees with that. Nobody disagrees with that in the abstract. But... It sounds amazing as long as there are seven incredible people to fill in the gap and to meet the need, right? Most people don't read that and say, well, I think I'm supposed to be one of the seven. In fact, if I'm not willing to serve tables, then there are people that are going to be, uh, there are needs that are not going to be met. There are people that are not going to be served. If I'm not willing to help cut the cake, then there are people who are going to, 
get their slice of cake and it's going to have like sweat from the pastor all over the, over the plate. And that's gross, right? We, we, we often don't put those two together, but that's exactly what's being, being um, proposed to us in this passage. The question is, are you going to be one of the seven? Am I going to be one of the people that step forward to cut the cake? Now, I'm grateful for the amazing people who invest incredible time and energy uh, to make this church all that it is. There are, we don't have seven. We've got like, we have 77. We've got, we have an incredible number of people who dedicate time and energy to build this ministry and to make it what it is. But I also hear people's dreams of what we could be. I also see the sweat of people who do double time, who put in uh, twice the work because there are many who sit on the sidelines. And so the invitation of a passage like this is to consider where am I in the body of Christ? Where is my place to serve? And when, when the time comes and somebody is asking for the cake to be cut, what's my response? And will I step forward to be one of the seven? So we said the church thrives when complaints don't, over, uh, don't overshadow priorities, when challenges don't overshadow commitment, and finally, when the fear of change doesn't overshadow solutions. It's all well and good for the leaders to come up with a solution. It was great that they didn't just say, here's our priority. They also said, hey, we got a problem. We need to come up with a solution. But if others don't follow that solution, if they don't, if they don't accept that solution, then everybody loses. The church thrives when the fear of change doesn't overshadow solutions. Now take a look at verse 5. I think everybody but the pastor reads verse 5 and thinks, well, there's nothing unusual there. But when I, when I read, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, I think this is a greater work of God's spirit than speaking in tongues or raising the dead. Like, this, this, is, this is remarkable. To introduce a change this profound and for everyone to be happy with it. I've got to be completely honest. If I was a Hellenistic widow, I'd prefer the apostles to serve me, thank you very much. Who doesn't want the Apostle Peter to be the one handing out the lunch bags? Like, that would be amazing. But they propose a different solution where other people are stepping into the gap. Maybe I don't know them so well. Maybe, maybe I'm not sure how qualified they are. Maybe I'd rather, you know, Peter could maybe just quote new scripture to me while he's giving me my lunch. That would be incredible. You, you want that kind of, uh, that, that kind of uh, nearness and closeness. And, and we even see this in our We Care ministry. We see this in our, in our church here. We've got dedicated people who are involved in congregational care and reaching out and ministering to our congregation, and yet many people decline their help. And so you can understand the challenge here. Uh, when you're used to the apostles doing everything, it's going to be an adjustment to now recognize, oh, they're... They're not going to be involved in this ministry. They're not going to sit on that committee. And other people, I've got, to, I've got to learn to trust them as well. Now, with the support of the congregation, the apostles recognized those who stepped forward. 
In verse 6, they pray over them, they lay hands on them, and from now on, there are new people that are going to be taking over this ministry to the Hellenistic uh, widows, and seemingly everyone's okay with that. Verse 7 is given as a summary, summary statement for this passage, not just for the seven verses that we read, but for everything that's preceded it in the book of Acts. It's there to say, this is what can happen when the church is marked by godly convictions, by godly commitment, and by godly courage. It says this, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now let's start with this phrase about the word of God greatly in, or continuing to increase. That's a strange way of putting it, right? We don't normally talk of a word increasing, but it's describing the word of God like a powerful person or a mighty force that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's growing in force and influence. And we're supposed to read that and think, Boy, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you love to see that in our church? Our church? Wouldn't you love to see that in our city? That the word of God was continuing to increase, growing in power, growing in influence? Then notice that the number of disciples isn't just increasing. It says, it doesn't say that they're, they're adding some numbers. It's saying they're multiplying. This is, this is telling us that those who are coming to faith in Christ are now taking that same gospel message and sharing it with others. So the, the, the increase is exponential, not just incremental. Wouldn't you love to see that in our church? Wouldn't you love to see that in our city? See growth taking place in this powerful way that not only are people being drawn to us, but those people are being transformed and leading others. And notice also, it doesn't say that the attendance is multiplying. It's not just talking about the seating capacity. In fact, in this passage, it regularly refers to the disciples. It's the first time in the book of Acts that that word is used. Nothing that we've seen in, this, in, in these seven verses could have taken place without a church full of disciples. They weren't just attenders. They weren't just people who, who were excited about some spectacular thing happening. They wanted to come and look at it. No, these are people who have become committed to Jesus and committed to his mission. Wouldn't you love to see that take place in our church? Wouldn't you like to see that take place in our city? See, disciples multiplied like that, growing like that. And then the verse ends by saying, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's unexpected, right? If you were with us last week, you, you heard the chief, the high priest, he's interrogating these apostles and then has them beaten, beaten mercilessly. And what this passage is teaching us, this final phrase is showing us, is that there's dissent in the ranks. That among the some, probably around 15,000 priests at this time, among them, many of them are coming over to faith in Christ. That despite what the high priest and the Sanhedrin have decreed about uh, this new movement of followers of Jesus Christ, some of these that you would think, boy, they would be like the hardest to reach people. How on earth are they ever going to put their trust in Jesus? And 
those people, many of them, a great number of them are coming, putting their faith in Christ and becoming his disciples. Wouldn't you love to see that in our city? Wouldn't you love to see some of the hardest to reach people being transformed by the word of God, being moved and saved by the message of the gospel? This passage here is just a short passage, but it gives us an incredible picture of a church that is marked by intercultural harmony, radical compassion. It's marked by unity and maturity. This is a church where people are eager to serve, people are released to do so, and there's ministry without the ego. This is a church where lives are changed, hard to reach people are saved, and disciples are just are, are multiplied, not just added. And, and, and we're supposed to read that and say, yeah, that, that's the vision of the church. That's what we're called to be. That's what is supposed to happen. And we're invited to see how that take play, take, takes place. You don't just go looking for a church like that, right? You, you help build one. You seek God for a church like that. You recognize that that is his work and you pursue it and you cooperate to be a part of it. And that's our invitation this morning. To be be those who would seek God for the power that is needed to build a church like this. And to be the people who align ourselves with his purposes that he might do that great work in in our midst. And so if you want to join me in doing that, let me just give you some very practical uh, ways that, that, that you might uh, be a part of that. Uh, first, I think we all need to talk about solutions more than complaints. We, we look at this, and it started with complaints, but we, we recognize that those complaints could have derailed the church. And, and here the message is, yeah, let's talk about the things that, where we need to grow. Let's look at the blind spots. Let's deal with those things, but to do so with a sense of, hey, maybe the reason that God has opened my eyes to this particular uh, need in this congregation is because he wants me to do something about it. Because uh, that's my role, that, that that is a hole he has called me to fill. And so we think solutions, not just complaints. Uh, Second, if you see growth as an inconvenience, maybe we all need to confess that as sin. Like, if if God took the early church and took 120 people and grew it into a church of 20,000 people in about, you know, period of a few years, there was chaos and disruption and it was incredibly inconvenient to, 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 to go through that growth. And yet that was the process that was necessary for those people to come to faith. And maybe the question you and I need to ask is, what kind of inconveniences might God be asking of me in order that more might come to faith in Christ? Where does my life and my lifestyle need a little disruption? Where does my understanding and attitude towards church need a little bit of disruption in order to make time, make room, and make available opportunities for people to put their faith in Jesus Christ? Our comfort can never be the goal. Third, be 
person who steps forward to cut the cake. And, and, and be the person who's okay with someone other than the pastor cutting the cake. That's the way I continue to make a priority of prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the way that our, uh, our ministries continue to grow and we continue to build the mission of the church. And that's the way that you and I get to be a part of what God is doing through all of us, not through just a handful of people. Finally, if you're not a disciple, if you're someone who is always kind of looking from the outside looking in when it comes to the mission of the church and the life that Jesus Christ calls us to. See what your life could be with Jesus Christ. He invites all people to trust him. He invites all people to turn from their sin and repentance and look to him and him alone for, uh, for salvation, for forgiveness, and the free gift of eternal life. But we've received that with an expectation and understanding this is a path of discipleship. It, it, is not a one, it is not merely a one-time event. It is more like opening the door to a new life. And it is that new life that we're all invited to. And so if you are not one of those disciples that is being multiplied here, then consider what your life could be with Christ in the center and him leading you forward. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible plan that you have for the church. Thank you for the vision you have to, to reach this world, to minister to its needs, to see hope and light and change through your body, through your people. Thank you for the picture of what your spirit can do when our lives are given over to you. And so would you give us this heart? Fill us with love and boldness. Change lives. Draw people to yourself. Give us a patience to embrace change. And give us a willingness to be a part of what you're doing. For we ask you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.